0: In this episode of Burritos Breaks and Flies, we bring you the dynamic duo of stillwater fishing, Mr. Phil Rowley and Mr. Brian Chan. We're super excited to have these two on board and our topic of discussion is going to be everything midges, size, color, presentation, techniques, the whole thing, and of course some burrito talk. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Loop Tackle, Adams Built Fishing, Monarch Fly Flylines, Without your support, hey, none of this could be possible. So sit back and enjoy this podcast on midges. And welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Taylor, air quotes, the Prodigy Brune. And we have two extravagantly awesome guests today. We're so excited to have them. I like to call them the dynamic duo of Stillwater fishing, Mr. Phil Roley, and Mr. Brian Chan. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us.
1: It's great, great to be here tonight with you guys. Good to be back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's Phil. We love having him on. <laughs> so, B- Brian's Brian's new to the podcast, and maybe, Brian, you could just give us a, a quick introduction uh, about yourself to those who may not be familiar with who you are.
1: Oh, yeah, well, I, I guess I'm an avid, avid still water fly fisher. I like to fly fish in other venues as well, rivers, saltwater, tropical, you know, cold water for pipe, lake trout, things like that. But certainly the forte for me is, is small lakes trout fishing because where I live, I'm surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of highly productive trout lakes that I've gotten to know, to know intimately over the years because as a profession, I was a, uh, a senior fishers biologist for the province managing 800 lakes for over 30 years. So uh, I got to know the inter- intricacies of lakes and uh, when you're managing them and uh, what's involved in the uh, maintaining that ecosystem for trout. And, uh, of course, being an avid angler, it really helped, uh, you know, me have a vision of how, how to manage those lakes. So, yeah, I guess, you know, for 50-plus 50, 50 years, I've been hooked on uh, – fly
0: fishing and in particularly uh, trout lakes right right so i would going to check the box here on my form that says more than qualified to speak to still water <laughs> fishing writing it down got it <laughs> that's that's awesome well that's that's an extraordinary background and in, in, i mean 30 years managing um the still water lakes and whatnot uh up in your province that's I mean, one, that, that's a huge number that you mentioned. There's a lot going on. So talk about having uh, an in-depth knowledge of, like, what's going on, when it's going on, you know, how, when, why, where, and how. And that plays a huge part into still water fishing and making decisions on how you're going to approach a lake, you know. So that's that's awesome. Thank you, Brian. And Phil. I don't know if you need an introduction, been here a few times, but just in case, just in case we got a first time listener hopping on, why don't you give a quick little, a quick little hello on, on well,
2: Phil. Well, like Brian, I've been, uh, fly fishing a long time and, and, uh, love to chase a variety of species on the fly. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, Brian and I, uh, you know, up until about 18 years ago, we're both based in the same province. So we spent a lot of time together fishing and, and working together, um, various projects, uh, we've. Uh, do schools together um we've got some coming up this year um now that the world's sort of back to quasi normal again whatever that means um and then we've done some we actually did a a a a two volume dvd uh collection as well so brian and i have been our, our fishing lives have intertwined a number of times over the years and and um you know a lot of my success is due in part to my uh my long-standing friendship with Brian um, and all he's passed on I consider him in some ways part of one of my mentors because we just have some really fun discussions and boats uh, doing rock paper scissors to see who puts a scud on um, those kind of things <laughs> <laughs> although we both love scuds now it was a bit of a love-hate relationship <laughs> for the next years but now we've gotten over but you know I- again just um, love to still water fish like Brian whenever I can
3: and, and, you know, Phil, Brian, for some reason, I see you guys fishing in a boat together and I see the waters parting and thunder <laughs> cracking over the lake. I, I don't know why. It's just gas. I, just, I have that image. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's kind of it's, it's, it's like it's very much like Star Wars uh, and the planet um, Luke Skywalker's home planet of, of Tatooine uh, desert planet. Which we refer to Pyramid Lake as, it's tattooing. Um, however, however, <laughs> sure. it's like the two suns in the sky, you know, yeah. like, that's that's kind of like what you're feeling. Oh,
2: well, we're, like, watching, which which ones we're which... watching over you, is that what you're saying? Yeah, like, okay. You said it,
0: yeah, sure, you said it. I mean both, you know, providing life and sustenance to the planet, you know, through fly fishing knowledge is an important thing. So, <laughs> sorry, a little bit of a... See, that's fanboy stuff right there. I'll back off. I'll back off. Can, so, can
2: Brian and I use that metaphor? Brian, can we integrate that? Maybe an opening slide with two sons?
3: That'll yeah. be a good one for this podcast. Yeah, actually, that's a great idea.
0: And you just solved the uh, uh, podcast poster issue. So that's solved. I'll write that down. We're good. All right. All right. So to the meat and potatoes of the podcast, why we have, your, we have you gents here today is to discuss the topic... Of, drum roll! Can you give me? It's good enough. Midges, midges, and I think we want to dive in to—I mean, really drill down on midges. What's a midge? Why we use it? What, what that's all about? There's a familiarity out here, especially let's—if we refer to Pyramid Lake, we know what we think we know what midges are, and so we're referring to a certain type of fly that we're going to use under a certain type of condition in a certain set of fishing circumstances. In this case, normally we're going to do indicator fishing. But other than that, it's just like, oh, what color and how deep? And that's, boom, that's where we go with no insight into why, you know, but what is a midge? When is it appropriate to use it? And if I don't have anybody to ask or I don't know what to use, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I do this? So from that point, I'd like to ask you gentlemen, maybe from each of your perspectives, uh, give us your definition and your perspective of like, what what's a midge like? What when somebody says let's use a midge, what do you say to them?
2: Go ahead, you start, Phil. <laughs> what's a midge? Well, a midge that's you know Brian and I refer to them as chronomids. Um mm. Midge is usually a term, at least for me, that has been synonymous with chronomids, um in moving water because generally in moving water their sizes are are a lot smaller. Um, and sort of that midge refers to their size, but chironomids are, are, are part of the, uh, the, the order diptera, meaning two-winged. They're, relation- they're related to uh, mosquitoes, but uh, thankfully the female of the chironomid species doesn't bite. She doesn't, doesn't need blood uh, to, for processing her eggs. Um, so they're, they're a comp- like midges, chironomids, it's an entire, uh, complete life cycle, egg, larvae pupa and adult, uh, and the trout, uh, with the exception of the eggs, feed on all three stages. Um, Most people, though, when they refer to chironomids, tend to symbolize that with just fishing the pupal stage, Um, and that's the stage that um, suspends just above the bottom after transforming from the larval stage and eventually elevates its way up to the surface where it uh, hatches into the, uh, the winged adult flies off, mates, lay eggs, lays eggs, and completes the life cycle. So they are uh, a critically important um, still water food source and in rivers too. Um, I think I was talking to Rick Haefley a number of years ago. Uh, uh, he's a well-known uh, aquatic entomologist and like, like Brian, uh, um, likes to fly fish as well, which is a pretty good combination. Um, and he told me there's over twenty five hundred species in Western North America alone. They often outnumber uh, their numbers outnumber all other insects combined. so they're they're critically important. And if you want to be successful on lakes, it is a hatch you've got to become uh, comfortable with, familiar with, and understand because, as Brian can attest, you can have some unbelievably uh, good fishing, and not just for small fish. Some of the largest fish we've ever caught have probably been on uh, chironomids, uh, particularly the pupa and the larval stages. That's sort of my reader's digest version, Brian. Anything you want to add to that, or
1: you know, I think just to, to re-emphasize, because there's such a diversity in uh, species, like over 2,500 species, you could you could in Pyramid Lake, for instance, have. 50 different species of cronimates in there, or midges. And I know I've never been fortunate to f- fish there. I think Phil has. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, I, I see the fishing is basically shore-based or you're out on ladders. Yes, So sir. we have many lakes, for instance, in British Columbia, where we have midges emerging in water, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 feet in depth Mm -hmm. and we have phenomenal pupil fishing at those depths so it just shows you how diverse that insect species is in terms of utilizing available habitat in whatever lake they're in the you know they adapt to the water chemistry they adapt uh, to, to the substrate that they can live in and you could have for instance, on Pyramid Lake, in the middle of that lake, I don't know how deep it is, but you 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 could have an entirely different species coming off in deeper water than you're having in the near shore shoal areas that you're most uh, uh, generally fishing. So it's it's as Phil said, it's a huge, diverse population of of a food source that uh, that trout and other fish species. Take advantage of because they're such an easy food source to consume. The the fish, regardless of species, expends minimum amount of energy for a huge return on nutrition, and that's what it's all about. If you're a fish,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to attest to the fact about catching large fish on midges, I've had in the past three weeks, two and a half, three weeks, I keep catching. Uh, well not keep yesterday was well that's another discussion but i catch i've been catching large fish and i mean my 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 biggest one this season was on a size 12 copper wino just a Mm -hmm. a wine thread and uh actually it was a a gold wire and a a copper head uh a 19 pound Lahontan cutthroat and it's just amazing you know you you get this thing in you're like it ate that you know and then i had a 17 a 15 a 14 a bunch of 10s 12s mm-hmm. and you know normally i'm going after them with leeches which are, are highly highly productive you know however this time of the year uh, for whatever reason they're more keyed in on um on the chronomids and obviously like in their pupil stage so like, yeah what you're saying is it's 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 phenomenal and it's phenomenal at the depths that we're catching them at not very deep
2: yep no, we've, we Faxing also out. have, yeah. we, we also, you know, the, the thing as well is they eat so many of these, the pupa in particular, and the other, the other stages that it, it just almost, to me, it becomes imprinted on them. And you can catch fish on and pupa uh, in particular when there is no visible hatch whatsoever. They just see one, right. eat one. It's kind of like you and I responding to our favorite candy, a jelly bean or a peanut. We know exactly what it is and we eat it. It's easy to eat. Um, and we can eat a lot of them, and, and the fish you process them quickly. So that also gives you the ability They eat. They fill up one day. The next day, they've digested them, and they're on the job again. So um, they just constantly graze on these, and it's just, as Brian mentioned, it's such an easy food source for them to eat with such a big return on, on calories because trout aren't on – they're not on weight watchers. are on weight gainers. So uh, <laughs> No. Yeah.
3: And, and, you know, Brian, what you said with easily being – what, probably 50 different species just in Pyramid Lake, you know, guesstimate, right? Um, You know, I was fishing out a certain part of the lake, and Nico's like, hey, they're hitting this color, this depth, you know, and I'm probably, what, four miles from you? Yeah, you're probably about four miles north of me. You know, four miles, right? You'd think, hey, it's one big lake. You know completely different pattern completely different yeah. size i was trying his stuff mm-hmm. you know he's texting me they yeah. didn't touch it but then they were touching you know what was the color that day like a uh, a fuchsia right like a reddish color for him it's the fuchsia nightmare that is correct and yes. then on my side of the lake literally <laughs> olive whitehead that's all they would touch
2: yeah.
3: you know just even then that four miles yeah
2: yeah well, i've had situations where we're in the same boat Fishing different sizes, different <laughs> colors, and, get, and getting fish. And they've got, you know, uh, certain fish keying on one and another, and some could care less. And as long as they'll eat big ones, little ones, small ones, just depends on their mood that day or other factors. So that's what makes them so much fun. And there's so many different ways you can fish them. You know, if I had one criticism now, of aeronimid fishing today, is everybody thinks it's under an indicator, and there's so many other ways to fish them.
1: You can have multiple species coming off at the same time. So multiple sizes and colors coming off at the same time and those fish will switch. They'll switch from one size and color and then an hour later, they're on a totally different color and size. And that's that's why Phil and I are such fans of proper use of a throat pump to uh, track their their, uh, feeding uh, changes in their feeding patterns during the day, particularly when they're on small food sources like may
3: mayflies, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and this guy over here recently bought a throat pump, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I haven't used it yet because I haven't caught big enough fish yet. I
2: haven't caught big enough
3: <laughs> fish since I bought it.
2: No, it, it's it's a critical tool, particularly because to me, if you like, that's you know, one of the pros of stillwater fishing is if you like matching the hatch. There's enough food sources and lakes to keep you going for. Ten lifetimes, it seems, and and coronamids are probably the ultimate one, as Brian touched upon, because you can have those variations not only in stages, but within those stages, particularly the pupil stages, those size and color variations that they can almost flip on on an hourly basis, it seems sometimes. So if you like that challenge of constantly trying to figure it out, it can also be a source of incredible frustration at times. Um, but uh, once you figure the puzzle out, it, it's just a lot of fun, and it becomes for me, it's very addictive to try and figure this thing out and to make make the subtle changes you know just drop a size change a color change a bead color sometimes change a rib color um makes the difference
0: yeah uh, so many combinations and let's 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 break this down a little bit more because i definitely i would like to review color and i like to review size but we will we'll talk about those separately maybe to kind of keep people on track and not get Get ourselves too lost because it's easy we're talking midges and chronomids so let's talk let's let's first talk about um
3: what do you want, do you want to do color yeah i mean okay. yeah with color you know uh you know living around here in northern nevada you know you go on the truckie and stuff and you'll see like some midge patterns it's like meh, red black cool whatever you know for fishing the river but it's like when we get into pyramid it's almost like a box of somebody's jelly beans melted in their fly box and I've never <laughs> seen a more extravagant, you know, like, Oh no, those ones are completely different. I put it a little extra you know, when we get into pyramid side, it seems like everyone's like that hot spot matters or that, you know, little flash at the tip. That's the only thing that did it, you know? Right. You know, versus like a river they see like, you know, cause trout have more time in a lake to kind of be like, Oh yeah, that's, that looks Better than, you know, in a current, for example, where they're like, oh, that's something. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah case in point, and I'll, I'll let you gents carry on with it. But
0: on the color, like recently I was catching nice fish on a, a, a fuchsia, a main body with a fuchsia color. And and the first larger fish that I was catching had a like a, like a reddish rib on it and either a silver or like a raw tungsten head on it. And I'm like, oh, that works great. I'm like, but what if, let me try this. And I swapped out that ribbing and the bead, I put a gold bead on and I put gold, gold wire on and I was kind of getting similar results, you know, and I would change back and forth and I'm like, well, interesting. What are they keying on here? But then there's other days where they're completely turned off by one and not by the other and whatnot. So I think that's where we come into place. Like, you know, when when we're talking color, you know, where do you see the biggest differences? And, you know, is it just the body color? How much does that ribbing come into play? Does the bead matter? I mean, is it as long as it's shiny, you know? And and you know, or, or does depth matter? Does a gold bead look better than a white bead at twelve feet? You know that type of stuff.
2: How much time do we have tonight?
3: <laughs> All right, we'll narrow it down. So <laughs> top top five colors you would think a midge would be. I guess there you go. That's, I don't know. That's a good thing, right? Narrow it down like that. Top performing colors, something well, like that.
2: Ryan, maybe a good per- precursor of this touch on how their colors change and their emergence process mm. and because that to me that's really why there's so many colors because uh, uh, they're in flux they'll they can start one co- like i've got video footage of them being one color transforming into another color and then they start to generate gas and then elevate because i've watched it all in the same petri dish. i've watched that pupa after throat pumping it out change right So that's, that's, Mm -hmm. they're, they're complex little gaffers.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'd say
0: so. I'd say so. Wow. Um, yeah. So maybe you could kind of walk us through maybe instead of getting too depth in the color, as far as favorites and whatnot, Mm -hmm. maybe talk us through that, that color change. Um, uh, you know, where do you kind of normally see them from, you know, a a pupa stage, you know, as they progress. And I know there's a gazillion different midges out there, but, you know we could let's let's use one as an example like a
3: i'll let you pick you're the expert but you know just to give us an example of how drastic that color change could be maybe that would be helpful i'd like to see nico name a scientific name of a specific midge though. I, I just <laughs> just <kidding>. you know <laughs> i don't know any either so it's
4: okay no. yeah
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so sort of like a color example you know like say hey i saw one it, it started as black and then the thing ended up is you know, bright yellow with chartreuse wings and red eyes, and you're like, oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes.
1: <laughs> well, there, there's certainly, at least in our part of the world, there's certainly common, there's a common uh, thread of colors that uh, you we see pupil colors in, and uh, I mean, uh, it's black-bodied ones, uh, various shades of green bodies, various shades of brown. Mm. And then we get into the to the shades of gray, which is the precursor to the gas filled shucks that 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 we then then end up calling chromies, like Phil's chromi pattern because they're gassed up. But even mm. a, a fully silver sheen gassed up pupa starts from a solid color when it first emerges from the larval shock. Mm -hmm. And then it's all the changes in, in, in the color of that pupa as it starts to generate gas to help it elevate to the surface. So if you're fishing a clear water lake on a sunny day, Versus the same lake on a cloudy day, the patterns that you're going to be fishing are going to look different to those fish on a sunny day versus a cloudy day. Mm-hmm. So then, then, that brings in the question of well, what about hot spots on the collar of the of the pupa or change the color of the bead or enhance the rib? For, you know what? A holographic. Flashaboo rib versus a thread rib on a dull day versus yeah. a sunny day. So that's where, that's as Phil mentioned earlier, that's where the challenge and the fun is. And, and, and again, that's why a throat pump can be such a valuable tool. Yeah. I mean, Phil and I, we, we put the throat pumps under a pillow when we go to bed at night. That's how important we consider those things, those tools, in, in in figuring out what those fish are feeding on.
2: Yeah, because you could have, you know, that example I alluded to earlier. You, I, I, I remember, because the beauty of an iPhone is you can take picture or video of these things now that, you know, we could never do before. We would make little notes and stuff and all that stuff. Now you've got that to view. But I had caught, I was in Manitoba, we'd caught a tiger trout by suspending our flies a foot above the bottom so when i throw pump that fish it must have had about 40 chronomid pupa in them and they had just finished transforming from the larval stage They just literally cut themselves free and it elevated just above the bottom and they'll sit there in these dense clouds thousands hundreds of thousands you know it's just a staggering amount and they're just sort of slowly wiggling there and they were still kind of a dark claret um, coloration you could actually see residual hemoglobin from the larval Mm. stage and as they uh, you know as I sat there and watched them they slowly transitioned as that hemoglobin decreased to this kind of dull olive coloration right and then eventually as the day progressed you know, and Brian talked about the gas because they use that gas, they get it because inside that pupil shuck is the adult. Like the pupil case is like a, a, a ziploc bag around it. Let's use a. And inside that bag is the adult, right? And it's it is able to trap gas between the the exoskeleton of the pupa and the adult inside, and that becomes shinier and shinier. and and especially when they elevate more, I think sometimes the water pressure, uh against the body if they're coming up out of deep water um a little more expansion and they look silver and brighter and brighter until they get up to the surface and emerge so that gas helps them become buoyant and helps them elevate up through and also when they hatch out of that shuck that expulsion of gas i think helps the adult sort of launch them out a little bit to come up, so you're going to see in in one species, you're going to see color variations alone. Multiply that by the number of species, and it, it, it can be, um, you know, challenging and fun, all you know, all all rolled into one. And you'll see, you know, I think Brian, when we did our DVD, we said if you had one color of chironomid to start with, it would be black body with a red rib, because black is the most predominant species. <laughs> sorry, predominant color, and that red sim represents the residual hemoglobin. That from the larval stage that still often gathers right at the tip we call them red butt coronamids and along the abdominal segments and then other colorations come in as brian touched about you've got different light conditions depth of water suspended matter in the water there's all these um variables so there's no not one magic that's the fly right
3: yeah yeah you know and and like brian mentioned earlier with you know some crominids hatching out of 80 feet of water right you yeah. know it yeah. the big factor is how does that color even look right mm-hmm. you know it could be a red mm-hmm. chrominid right at 80 feet but how does the fish perceive it yeah. due to the fact that hey is it a cloudy day is it a sunny day how much light's actually getting through that deep in the water column
4: Exactly. And
3: what color is expressed on that chromatid to that fish.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, when we're when, when we when we're fishing these deep water quantum hatches, obviously if say if you're fishing at 60 feet and dangling straight up and down a chromatid people on a type 7 line there's no minimal, if any, sunlight penetration down to that depth. So yet those fish can still be extremely selective on what they'll bite so what we think is most important is it's the right your pupil pattern is the right size for what's coming off mm-hmm. it's got segmentation so they see the silhouette of the segmentation and, and um you know yeah. it, beyond that uh those fish can still be very picky as to whether they'll take, for instance, a uh, a static bag body versus a a duller gray thread body, they can be that picky. You'll get fish on both of them, but the one fly will will catch. It'll be three to one, and so obviously they're keying on on something that you know. It's it's. I think the bottom line is you you need to be prepared to try different sizes or different color combinations but again just just think how valuable if you when you catch your first fish from 60 feet and you did a throw pump you could get really dial it could really help narrow down the selection
2: process yeah especially early in the hatch because they will stage for hours sometimes days in those dense clouds so you may be as you Mm. talked about earlier nico fishing a leech and and get a fish and do a throat pump and there's 70 80 coronamid pupa in there and you're not seeing anything at the surface because those fish are already targeting those suspended pupa because it's easy they you know a lot of times with with you know all these variables we talked about are important but Brian, I think we can both agree that the most important thing is the depth of your presentation. If you can get your fly to the zone they're feeding, because it's like the more bugs that are in the water, the more focused, it's just efficient feeding behavior, not to chase these things all over the place, like they might chase a larger food source, like a bait fish or something. They're just going to zone into a depth, and it's almost like the more bugs that are out there, the more that zone compresses, and a six-inch change, a foot change in your presentation depth, it makes all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah, and the gentleman mentioned something about <clears throat> you know, you get these clouds, you know, of of the chironomids and the pupas down there. Like you said, they'll be all bundled up. And on that one 19 pounder I caught, I made an interesting observation. And he took a um, he took a size twelve, you know, copper winer. Copper copper wino that was tied in white yeah. like, copper whang. Tied yeah. with uh the it was in that claret color.
4: Yeah.
0: Um and and he was hooked on the top outside of his mouth with the angled back. And as I took him out of the net, and I, I, I'm looking for the midge because a lot of these midge catches, I'm catching them right in the snout. You know, they're coming up, rah, you know, grabbing it. But this one was unique because it was on the side and it was kind of angled back and up, luckily in a good spot. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, man, and I thought about it and I'm holding him and I see him open his mouth. He opens his mouth. ah. And I pull that barbless hook out, just comes out. And I'm like, man, you know what? I don't know if this midge had anything to do with it. It was right time, right place. I feel like this guy just had his mouth open and it was just cruising by swallowing hordes of, of you know, mid pupas. I mean, or, I mean he could have went for it, but it's just the, the, in the manner that it was so different than all the other, uh, you know, trout I've caught there. And I'm like, man, I just happened to have it in the zone at the right place, right time, right depth. Which, ironically, it was only hanging like at four and a half, five feet, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a nine foot bottom, and I'm like, "Wow, what luck is that?" <laughs> you know,
3: <laughs> what luck
0: is that? You know, but he went for it, you know. So that tells you, like, kind of where those, how those things, it, you know. Now I could paint a picture, you know. I could paint a picture. Well, that whole thing was probably up here. That's why they are hitting higher, and they weren't hitting low. They were hit. They were not hitting low. Well, and
3: on top of that, you know your your profile of that size twelve. I I guarantee, just seeing the midge hatches I've yeah. seen at Pyramid, they're the ones actually hatching are smaller. But mm-hmm. you know, like Phil said, just that hey, that looks like a big midge. Ooh, mm-hmm. you know, not the real size, but he he was already in that zone. Yeah, and he went well, for that I, one too.
2: Yeah, that's one of the strategies we do sometimes is unmatch the hatch a little bit because they can get so focused on a particular size and color but you know it's if they're eating a 14 maybe they'll take a 12 appeal to their predatory nature maybe it looks bigger i know some some guys believe in going a size smaller right sometimes we we fish flies that are just totally loud and gaudy almost like an attractor chronomid because it's you know brian's got a pattern called the bmw which is um i've done very i remember a day on Hebgen lake in in montana were you know what we caught some fish on coronamids. we'd done a throat sample they were i'd say size 14 um starting to gas up a little bit so a little bit of a uh you know a, a silver ribbing on them um not too predominant yet but you know i thought i had a pattern of matched D- they weren't terribly interested in it so i you know, something in my, you know, my experience said, well, I had good luck with Brian's BMW before and it's BM, it stands for, right, Brian, Brian's Marabou Wiggler, isn't that what it's called? And um, it's just a, a very sparse <laughs> Marabou tail on a 2XL, um, about a size 12. I was using uh, Nymph Hook with a, uh, I believe it was a silver bead on it with a silver rib. It's coronamid like um, and I was fishing it like a coronamid It was, tw- you know, well over twice the size of the naturals. And they couldn't leave that thing alone, right? It was unbelievable. They were eating one thing, but we um. had to shake them out of it. So that, again, that's another, you know, riddle in this puzzle that you've got to constantly solve. Because sometimes, you've got, like Brian says, you've got to match them size, the color, the profile, everything, the presentation depth to be successful. And other days, you got to do something you know, a little off-centered to to get some success.
0: Right. And then since we're we're on the topic of size, um, you know, we have some common size patterns that we use out here, uh, you know, specifically like for Pyramid. Uh, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but you'll see sizes anywhere from size 8 all the way safely. I've seen some small sizes, um, (laughs) but safely like down into that 12 and 14 range. Uh, because, you know, then you get too small, you start sacrificing, you know, hook strength and integrity and the ability to, you know, catch more than one fish or land a fish or, you know, you're sacrificing a midge each time. Um, or just
3: simply getting your 18-pound tippet through the eye hole. <laughs> <right>?
2: <laughs> I Which, your subtle tippet size down there. It's like Argentina.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, here,
0: I mean, we're we're fortunate enough to, you know, it falls along your philosophy as as long as it fits through the eye hole. We'll use it and, 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 uh, you know, they're not, they're not line shy. They're not line shy at all. Um, you know, in in cutthroat fashion, they, I'm normally, my average line size, I'm using a 12 pound, you know, fluoro. And they don't, I I don't see a difference between that and running a 10 or an eight. Or sometimes if I have really heavy winds I'm dealing with that we have to cast into, like on an indicator, I'll step that up to 15 to reduce, you know, Uh potential, potential. You know what? Yeah, and, uh, and no difference. If they're hitting that day, I mean, I feel like I could tie a boat rope to it. And as long <laughs> as there's a midge attached to it somewhere, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to eat it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so that's our saving grace when it comes to line. So we don't have to worry about the stealthy presentation. It's just, you know, being at the right depth at the right time. Um, but, however, I, we do have some specific, specific questions on size I think you could help us address. And we were just speaking about, you know, altering that size. To to get their attention, whether it's a size smaller, you know, a size bigger, you know, something that catches their eye (laughs) in combination with color, you know, and depth. However, let's change that up a little bit and let's play with the water quality, uh, water uh, clarity a little bit. So let's say we're fishing. I'll use an example. I have a size 12 on. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have clear conditions. Um, And then we get uh, uh, we get some wind gusts a little bit of atmospheric change and now our our water went a little steelhead on us, you know, Mm -hmm. went a little, maybe a little green. So our clarity has suffered. Um, Would you say, you know, ticking up the size of the midge at that point would be relevant, you know, saying, Hey, I feel like they're still hitting that same color. Potentially. (laughs) Would you adjust that midge size up or down for a water clarity issue or does it matter?
4: uh i
1: I think I would go up in size, but I'd also be prepared to try some different colored bead heads yeah like
4: uh-huh.
1: you know a, a rainbow colored bead that's, that that uh, you can get uh in, instead of a white bead or uh putting on putting a silver bead on mm-hmm. and, uh, using the same pattern but with a silver bead
2: so or even if it's deep, sometimes some fluorescence, you know, like a fluorescent orange. But Brian made a good point. You know, white beaded coronamids are are very popular. Um, yes. And we do like to use those, or at least I like to use them, in those murkier conditions or a depth because they just seem to stick out a little better. Because we're also trying to some degree, not play hide-and-seek with our flies and bury them amongst 150,000 <laughs> naturals as well. We want ours to stick out a little bit to be found because we're, we're trying to catch fish and, as I jokingly say, save insects' lives because while Brian and I have perhaps taking that fish out of the game for 15, 20 minutes, all those cr- other coronavids didn't get eaten <laughs> in that time frame, so they got to go emerge and have careers and families and those kind of things. Um, <laughs> right. so we can tell. <laughs> but, yeah. um, right. <laughs> um, there are times as well that we've had white beads on our flies and they're too bright, they're too stark, particularly in clear waters where we've changed and gone the other way to a more of a somber kind of pattern or even a, a fly without a beadhead. You know, years ago, we didn't have beadheads. They were a thing of the future. We, we tied traditionally our flies with a, a peacock curl thorax, some ostrich gills, and maybe a, a wing case of pheasant tail or pheasant rump. And And that was our basic coronament. That's all we could we fish because we couldn't really weight them because they just turned too fat. and they they generally didn't work very well. So the beads have really been, you know all the synthetic materials that we've got nowadays enable us to tie much more better representations of what we're seeing out there. So again, those in those clear water situations, we always have a black pen in our kit bags. We've actually taken a black marker and colored up the white bead to make it a black bead. Because they would just seem to be turned off, or the white bead wasn't as productive.
3: brilliant. You know? It's brilliant. Save money on beads too. It, well, well, I'm all white, and then <laughs> sharpie yeah. them out. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you never know. Uh,
2: <laughs> 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 lots of people do it when they're tying thread body chronomids, right? Trying to get the, it's it's you know taking a particular color, and and then you know common practice nowadays is to put a little thread um, thorax right behind the bead of either kind of a um a rusty brown coloration or a burnt orange to suggest the that that's the common color the wing pads of the natural to put that behind there just to suggest that um and then as some tires you know from time to time i do it they'll actually make wing buds and get you know very realistic looking you know trying to be super realistic with their tying right so
0: i'm feverishly (laughs) taking notes over here because most podcasts i don't some i do but this one just because it's so in depth you know you would never think that you know you could get this in depth on on corona patterns but there's so many so many changes going on from the time that you know they come out of their egg and they, they they hatch out noting all these changes is fascinating and these little subtle things like you just noted you know the the significance of color behind the bead you know to signify you know that the wing buds it's like well i didn't know that like i just thought ah huh, it's some kind of contrast it's some kind of this which i mean it can be it, or it, it is but it's just like wow i didn't take the color that seriously because sometimes like well what color i'm going to put here i'm like, i'm going to put hot pink why because yeah. well it's a hot spot now and it's like well sure you know they work
2: sometimes. In that, in i try to hot spots
0: yeah you know, but sometimes think,
2: again to stand out to stand be out be that sure. little different be that little awkward or whatever the <laughs> yeah. That's gonna
3: get, you know, <laughs> the signature. poor albino one. The poor you albino one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I've done, you know, full chartreuse chromatids, and then it's like, oh, I guess I've never seen something like that. But yeah. Know. Well, but it's nice it's nice
0: to have this foundation because now you can take from the total naturally evolution or you know, evolution of, of the hatch process, understanding where what the ribbing means, you know, how these colors progress. You know, uh, we just talked about the wing buds, you know, and the significant of, of the bead colors, you know, versus, you know, murky. In our case, our murky is usually a result of sandy water, you know, mixed with a little bit of algae off the bottom, uh, which makes it kind of unique. That that sand fog, it's like an underwater sandstorm. It's bizarre, you know, and you could see it for miles. Like you, you could be driving it on the lake and you could see it on the shoreline. Right so right you can, the wind so, line. Right, so yeah. you can know, like, oh, hey, the wind's turning it this way and I could see where the current's going, and that's great. Those are wonderful fishing indicators because, like, man, if I if I know where that's at, I I can get out so far, and I could, you know, fish the edge of that mud line, you know, you know right on the inside or the outside because those fish will hang out in there and, and pick things off safely because they feel – in my opinion, they feel safe. I think I haven't asked them personally, yeah. but it seems no – you know, No well, pelic- pelicans. No pelicans.
3: <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> well, the pyramid's unique. Um, yeah. You know, the lakes Brian and I fish because we've got lakes that are – you know, crystal clear. You can see, you swear, you can see every weed on the bottom at 25 feet. I'm wow. thinking of Sheridan, Brian, and lakes like that that are just super clear. And then we've got the really productive muddy bottom lakes as well that are lots of suspended um matter drifting around in the water that has an impact on visibility as well so we you know Pyramid's such a big body of water when that lake gets rolling and moving it uh, <laughs> takes a while yeah. to settle down right well, ours are a lot of time you know how how big is i'm not even sure how many acres pyram- oh, pyramid geez. is, but it's probably bazillions um you know we're fishing sometimes lakes that are 400 acres or less so they're a lot smaller and they yeah little different environments so there's it's almost yeah. each lake each lake can be different or right. and different times of the year again more fun and frustration
0: <laughs> right right so let's let's switch gears we've we got some of that wonderful size and color stuff down and like you're right we could go for days we could go <laughs> with days yeah you're right like you said it earlier i'm like oh whoa i just asked like like hey let's just Start reading the encyclopedia from page one and go to the end and everybody well, hang we've on. Only
2: been, we've only been talking about pupa. We haven't really touched on the larval stage, right, which is <laughs> oh an important gosh. stage, you know, often ter- called the bloodworm in many circles. And then there's there's from time to time there's, there's feeding on the emerger and the adult stage too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're just tip of the iceberg stuff here.
0: That's okay. That'll keep us going for more. So, you know, you
3: know on, on that subject, uh, what would you guys say, you know, to the exposure of the fish? Cause I'm definitely not a bug pro myself, but you know, when that, when that, when that chrominid is vulnerable to being, you know, I know fish can dig for them, of course, in their, you know, bloodworm stage and stuff, but, um, you know, from bloodworm, on their path to adulthood, what per you know, would you say a midge is mostly you know coated in that that bubble or has that bubble started to form? You know, in that prime zone of when it's going to get attacked. Does that kind of make sense?
2: So you're asking what percentage of that? Cause, you know, we, Brian and I often get asked what percentage of each life cycle we would fish, and I think when we did our DVD together, I think we said. And I, I, I tend to use about eighty percent fishing the pupil stage, fifteen mm. percent fishing the larval stage. Probably should fish the larval stage more um because it's a really important food source, and then five percent on the adult stage. Um, and pr- the 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 pupil stage is the most exposed because of that, the whole life cycles basically in open water, so it's it, yeah. there's nowhere to hide. Um, so, uh, you know, if a fish is in the neighborhood and in the mood to eat them, um, there's nothing that's going to stop it. So, but they're, as we talked about earlier, there, there's a part of their life, they're part of their, the pupil stage where they're kind of somber and then they're progressively getting brighter and brighter and brighter as they get closer to emergence.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating.
1: Like you guys fish a lot of pupil patterns and with the maroon magenta bodies, is mm-hmm. that true?
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, like an absolutely. albino. So, the, yes, yes, very so, similar. You know, when
1: sure. you when you use a body that color, you're you're kind of doing a dual imitation. They could be taking it for the larval mm-hmm. stage as well as a pupil stage with yep. being that body color. So I mean, there there could be a lot of larval feeding. Mud, we're feeding going on in that lake. Uh, it's it's the substrate you're fishing over. is It's not mud. You
2: you're fishing over it's
3: generally sand. Yeah, it's all the way down,
2: or is it sand along the shoreline and then into mud as the lake gets deeper? It it, it has to get I don't mud into deeper. Down no, there no, <laughs>
0: no, it does get it does get muddier on the deeper stuff because yeah. it it is it is a um uh what do you call it um terminus lake. Uh,
3: so it gets a lot of sediment and whatnot, and it's also sediment. semi-geothermal. There are mm. geothermal hot spots that do produce more of that kind of silt.
2: Yeah, so that's tons prime, of calcium
3: in the water. That's prime
2: <laughs> coronamid larva habitat. They love that stuff to to burrow into. They, but also you've got such prominent wave, wind and wave wind-induced wave action that mm-hmm. that's gonna you know when that stuff gets cycling, sure. it's gonna suck them right up. And yeah. once the crayonumid larva is out of its safety of its home, they're feeble swimmers. They move around like a severed earthworm, if you remember, bait fishing from a kid um, <laughs> to get more mileage out of your worms. Um, that's And once they're adrift, they're at the mercy of the elements and they are uh, easy, easy pickings for yeah. uh, opportunistic <laughs> so, <laughs> H-
1: Have you guys ever seen cronomet larvae in the surface film?
2: Actually,
3: I've seen the adults... It, it, Usually, when I see the adults, they're kind of yeah. hiding behind.
1: uh you've never seen blood. the blood. you never seen bloodworm. Bloodworm blood up on the
3: surface. On the surface film. I
0: have. I have. It, it, it actually, yeah, I have. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. usually when you get a little bit of I won't call it turnover, but if you had a, um, uh, you know, some wind action that churned up the lake, you know, yeah. for a few hours or half a day or something, and then on the residual side of that, on the settling yeah. side of that, is where I've seen it kind of muck up on the shoreline, especially yeah. I, I don't catch it. Believe it or not, I don't catch it most on like on the, on the sandy shorelines, but on the rocky shorelines, I, I definitely will catch that because that stuff gets caught in little, yeah. it's it kind of pools, you know, know coves yeah. and yeah, yeah. things. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you gentlemen kind of answered another question about the, the, the those, uh, those things getting caught up like in their larval stage because I've, I've fished uh, those Claret, like wino patterns deep mm-hmm and get results but then i'll i mean i have this one spot where i'll go fish that thing literally four feet i'll Mm -hmm. put that four feet on indicator and i'll get all my hits on that however it's in an interesting transition spot where it's coming off a shelf you know i'm sitting in i'm sitting personally like in six feet of water 40 feet in front of me is 12 feet deep another 40 feet past that drops down to 40 to 60 feet Mm -hmm. and and it, it feels like those things get whipped up whatever that current is. Those things get rolled up because I'm like, why are these things hitting on the top and not at the bottom? This doesn't make any sense.
4: Yeah. And I'm like,
0: oh, they must be getting churned up. But you gentlemen kind of answer that question. Well, they're getting churned up. They can't go down.
2: And the yep, fish are sure. looking
0: up, you know.
2: They probably don't know up from down once they've been disturbed. They're just drifting around right. hoping that eventually they land back on the bottom, right?
0: Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. absolutely. Um, well, it, we kind of covered that. I think that that pupa stage is a big part of what we're playing in. And that larval stage, absolutely, too, we'll pay attention to that. But for time's sake, <laughs> let's talk about um, just some, you know, basic presentation methods and maybe not get too in the weeds. Like, you know, we, we, we can talk a little bit about depth and whatnot, but that's situational to where
3: the fish are. Yeah, I, and, like, we talked I, about that a lot in the indicator, we, you know, we, but, like, the weird, the weird methods, you know, like you mentioned, the sinking we line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. We, we, no, but. <laughs> Dang it. Isn't that weird? <laughs> um, alternative,
0: alternative methods, you know, what what you know, there's maybe some methods that you use, and I think most importantly, I'd like you to touch upon, uh, you know, the proper. I think this is this is key, the proper rigging of, of a coronamid pattern, um, because I I have a hard time dealing with, I have a very hard time dealing with seeing the inline coronamid patterns, where you have you have uh you know, uh, coronamid pattern A, and then you have Hook shank with line coming off of it, mm-hmm. going down to B. And not saying that doesn't work, but however, I, I've seen my success rate and catch rate significantly increase using, like, filled the method that you teach frequently. You know, with, you know, with Slide the tag up. or the loop end and stuff yeah. like that. So maybe you guys can kind of touch a little bit on on presentation methods that you find, uh, you know, effective for, you know, fishing the coronamid patterns.
4: So we're um. So we're
0: we're going to move ahead. We're going to move beyond indicator fishing. No, can you can don't. No, you can touch on <laughs> anything. You can touch on indicator. You can <laughs> anything. Yeah. No, we're not going to move past that.
2: <laughs> that was, yeah,
3: that was just yeah. to get so, stirred
0: up. Because
2: yeah. that's probably the method most people associate with yes, a stillwater fishing and coronament fishing in particular. Are, is yeah. the indicator technique.
0: Yeah. Exactly, it, and I think I think maybe the discussion can revolve around. Um, how you favor using like the tag ends or you're using, you know, you're either taking the line and putting it above the split shot to where you have a little bit of an adjustable, you know, uh, a chronomit up top, and then you have your swivel, then you have your, you know, your fly on the bottom versus just going in line, like how that tends to maybe pick up a little bit more fish, you know, versus like just using an inline pattern, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it, and like what? What are the advantages and the disadvantages of that? Because I think you know the one advantage of having that inline pattern, it's quick and easy to tie, and you can throw it out yeah. there. It's like it, oh, it, boom, 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 boom.
2: You know, yeah. where where Brian is, unfortunately, he can't use droppers, so he has to come visit me <laughs> next door or travel <laughs> south, but. Uh oh. um, you know the inline me- I call it the tandem method is probably the most common where you're literally tying off the bend of another and they're and they're in line so from a casting point of view one follows the other it tends to tangle less
4: mm-hmm. but
2: I I don't like that method for like for if you're new to droppers sure it's a, it's a great place to start yeah. but over the years you know since I've started you know I'm a big believer in droppers and using them wherever you you know obviously it's got to be legal to do so but um when you tie something off the bend of another I wonder that you negatively impact that fly's ability to fish and move and also in a vertical situation whether you're fishing under an indicator or fishing vertically with fast sinking lines um if you've got sort of tippet coming off the eye of one fly and the, uh, off off the fly and then tippet coming off the bend of the other um I I, I remember a situation I had a friend with last year he was getting takes And as he set the hook, the fish would be on for a millisecond and gone. And this just kept happening not once, but almost every fish. He was having a heck of a time getting hookups, right? We're both using the same stuff. I'm I'm getting hookups. And we discussed it. And we believed his dropper system because as that fly is hanging there with basically fish, you know, leader or tippet coming off the eye and tippet off the bend, as the fish came in to take the fly, it either felt, sensed the you know, the tippet again and just felt weird, maybe on it. You know, I'm not a fish, it's yeah. lips, or actually pushed the fly out of the way. So he saw that, set the hook, maybe tagged it a little bit, but not enough to get a good firm hold on it. And it spat the fly, the fish was off. Whereas right. I was fishing, uh, I like to fish off independent droppers, um, either off a tag or I, my favorite way is to take about six or eight inches of tippet. And put a perfection loop in one end and loop that section of tippet around the leader above a stopper. So a stopper could be a split ring, not a split ring, a tippet ring, a swivel, or a, a, a leader connection knot like a triple surgeons. Because you need some kind of stopper to stop it from sliding all the way down the leader of the point fly. And the benefit of this method is the flies move independently of each other. Um, some of the methods we use with coronamid fishing, leader length and maintaining the integrity of your leader is important. And sometimes with other methods, you're, you're just slowly chewing away at the leader every time you change the fly, and things get shorter. And all of a sudden, you're not getting down as deep as you need to get anymore. Um, and you can easily change a fly. You can just put one on, trip on, you know, cut it off, tie another one on, and, you know, eventually you, you're going to have to replace the dropper. But with that sliding dropper I mentioned with the perfection loop, I can just cut it off and tie another one on and i know i'm done in seconds so it's very versatile and that dropper has the ability with this to sort of move around the leader and you know there's no perfect tangle free dropper system i think we can all really know that um but it's the you know it's one of the least tangle prone systems and it's very versatile and has served me very well for many years now i just totally addicted to it
0: no it works it works really Really well <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think to the point where you know we have it in line, I, I like that you brought up the point of you know, you're speaking of of that gentleman you know getting the misses mm-hmm. and I think a lot has to do with you know maybe they went for it and like you said, that fly may have never made it into its mouth because it's open mouth then you know maybe it hits that it hits that uh, uh, you know the uh, fluorocarbon or the mono or whatever it hits it on the nose and it's like, oh, what was that you know or it takes it as, it's in its mouth. It closes its mouth. You see your bobber drop, but nothing happened. It just literally yep. ran into your line. That's it. It's just like if, in, the fish if, is swimming away, going, "I'm still hungry."
2: <laughs> if <laughs> like, you what, talk what to that? European nymphers too, they're the same way. They they especially well in competitions. You can't fish tandem systems. You have to have a continuous leader. But they love to fish independent droppers as well, even when they're fishing sort of recreationally. Uh, for that reason as well, they believe that at times the fish can, you know, for all their best efforts, to the system gets in the way of them eating the fly properly, or in such a way that they get hooked up. So,
0: right, and then I have how- I
2: have I have friends that believe this theory of mine, so strength <laughs> strength <laughs> they fall
3: up- they <laughs> fall <laughs> for it.
2: Yes. Like, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, must be right. Phil said so. No, it's not that way. <laughs> the church droppers. Uh. yeah <laughs> But you know we you talked about indicators, Brian and I fish indicators a lot. We we enjoy fishing it. It's it's very productive, right, Brian? It's you got your fly set at the right depth. So once you've dialed in that depth, your flies where the fish are feeding the entire time, right? So it's it's very effective.
1: I mean that certainly is the most uh, common and easiest technique to learn too. But you know, we, at the same time, we in the same depth zones, we could be fishing naked, floating line and a long leader, and uh, although it requires a little bit more patience to allow you wait for the your fly, your selection, your two flies to sink down to the depth zone. It, sometimes the fish want a fly that is moving through the water uh, and not stationary, and then, particularly aggressive fish. They'll chase they'll chase those fish those flies that are drifting through the water so um, you know I think in the situation where you where you guys are fishing that pyramid lake I think you're it's an ideal situation to be trying uh, make it long long flo, long uh, sinking leader off a floating line
2: yeah that's how Brian and I at least uh, I learned to fish coronamids. it was a time served proposition, because the naked technique is more finessey, you're playing with leader length, how long you let the fly sink, how much you move the fly, how much your patterns weigh, there's a lot of things to get in sync for that method to work, but as Brian touched on it, it teaches you patience and touch, which you really, because fish, as you've probably seen, can take coronamids very, very subtly. Right. They don't have to expend much effort. So even your indicator takes are not the classic bubble trail four feet under. We love those. Sometimes that indicator might go half down. It might slide to the left. Sometimes they'll take it on the way up and the indicator appears to grow in size a little bit. Um, Those kind of things. That's So when you learn those skills through this naked technique, and we call it naked because there's no... um, indicator on the leader we are totally clothed with this method guys so uh, right <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah we're not uh it's golden Canada for that but um you know it, when Brian's talking long leaders we're talking 15 18 20 25 feet even sometimes longer right wow. so casting that out letting it sink You know, a lot of times we'll let the wind sort of drift it along as it's sinking as well. And it's a really fun method uh, once you master it because the takes are like a wet fly swing on a river too.
4: You Uh. know, sometimes
2: the line just moves a little bit. You'll see the tip move or a little squiggle pull. Like sometimes you get a little memory in the line and all of a sudden that'll just straighten out. That's a grab. So you're actually, this is where it teaches you the touch because you're starting to recognize really subtle takes that you wouldn't even recognize in the past, right? And that just those kind of skills Brian and I believe really transfer over to other forms of still water fishing where you're just more in touch with what's going on with your presentation but when they take it you know confidently that take is very for me is very very addictive you know your rod just takes off or it's just off and gone and you just want to repeat it's as addictive as a bobber drop (laughs) at times right (laughs)
0: yeah yeah Yeah. that's that's fascinating that's like I, I love I love wet fly fishing on on rivers. It's just a blast. Like you said, it's just, you know, you're, you're just watching that line. You're watching it, watching it. And you have, depending on the speed of water that you're fishing, you can see that subtle change. But I mean, at, at least out here, like on my home river, the Truckee or, or like the East Walker there's no real subtlety to it it's like it's on like you know I mean few and far between where you get a subtle take it's just like they grab and go yeah. and it's like as long as you're holding your rod in the right position it's almost like a self hook set it's like well oh, f- fish fish on you know like wow that, there you go
2: and some you of know. your beaches you've got in in pyramid where you know mm-hmm. it'll go out and then just slope off into deep water that's yeah. a fine place to try that naked technique right where they're mm-hmm. just cruising on the deep side of the drop-off um you know they could be at any depth along there. So you can play with your leader length and your sink time and, and sort of dial them in that way. So um, that's, that's one. And then Brian, we, you know, years ago when you were mentored by Jack, you um, used to fish slow sinking lines, right?
1: Yeah, you know, we just before, before indicators came on the scene, it was, it was floating line long leader, or we'd fish a type one, type two, type three, full sinking line. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, cast out as far as you can, let her sink, and then bring the fly up on a gradual angle up through the water column. And uh, the takes, that's what was so addictive, because there is no hesitation. It's just dead weight, gone. And uh, you know you really (laughs) fooled them then. And so, um, you know, uh, back then we didn't know about deep water chronomat hatches. We figured, oh. Well, all chronomids come off in 20 feet of water or less uh, but uh, but now we know different and uh, but those uh, you know intermediate sinking lines uh, one two threes covers great 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 way to present chronomids. you're you're bringing the pupa up through the potential feeding windows that those fish are feeding at and at some point you know you're gonna you'll you'll notice a a pattern that uh, you'll get your bites within the first seven or eight retrieves because they're taking it just as it's making the bend and coming up and so you know you can you learn that you know you know that they're taking them close to the bottom and they see this crumb and starting to rise just like the real ones except your pattern is moving a little bit faster it's a little bigger or it just stands out and they got they can't resist it they I just, I
0: just got to have it. <laughs> wow. And is that like, are you guys using like that kind of creeping retrieve? Like I know Philly talked about that really, yeah. like, that painfully inch by inch where you're just, just moving it subtly yep. enough, yep. you know, but just yep. nothing, you know, you're yeah. not yeah. ripping it in. Yeah.
2: No, I like to fish like a hover line that sinks at one inch per second. And uh-huh. it's it's a favorite of mine to do on a on a windy day where sometimes it's not practical to use a floating line setup because the surface chop is just bouncing your present. you know the lines bouncing all <laughs> over the place your indicator <laughs> is your flies herky jerking everywhere and, and you know some days they like that some days they don't but also casting those longer leader or those indicator setups in that wind can be problematic from a casting and tangles perspective um mm-hmm. with this slow sinking line method we're fishing you know a single fly setup we may only have seven and a half nine feet a leader. That's it. Okay. So you have a short um, space between your fly line and yourself, um, and the takes as Brian talked to are a lot. You like you know you've got to fish. So, like it's surprisingly aggressive um, for such a small food source, right? It, it's a good. It's uh It's it'll wake you up.
3: <laughs> wow. Yeah. And you and know that, you know. Oh, you ahead. go ahead, Phil.
2: No, I was just going to say that we'll get into the other addiction, which is the fast sinking lines uh, fished vertically um
3: oh well i mean that's a you know that's a no-brainer right there you know and that kind of brings me you know (laughs) i was thinking about chrominids you know pyramid is you know when everyone was fishing it you know way back when it was all about sinking lines you know it was stripping woolly buggers and you know nobody knew about chrominids yeah the only way was short-tailed woolly buggers and you're a heathen if you said anything else (laughs) <laughs> um but, but that kind of brought me popcorn back <laughs> that's yeah. it that's it It's popcorn that's Being all you know other gurglers you know yeah. but yeah yeah um but i kind of gone full circle i've been thinking about this other method in my head where i'm like well what if you could use that type seven right
4: mm-hmm.
3: and you tie your mute midge pupa upside down so instead of where the bead is right at the hook shank you tie like a foam arse blob for instance Okay. You know what I mean? Like a little touch of white at the tip, tie them upside down and then strip, you know, in this situation at pyramid, right. We're generally not in boats. And I was, I was sitting there on shore this last time I was fishing, not catching anything for a while. And I was like, what if I stripped like a foam prominent slowly up the shore where it's floating up above. And then you maybe reach that, that point, like you were talking about with that, that washing. I see what you're saying. You see what I'm saying?
2: You could do that. Yeah, that's that's a common method, particularly in England. They'll fish chronometers that way with that washing line technique, with something buoyant on the point, and then, you know, um, washer your flies hanging off independent droppers like clothes on a washing line. That's where that mm-hmm. uh, comes from. But what we're talking about with the fast sinking lines is a method we we call dangling, where we're fishing vertically uh, from an anchored position straight down. So Brian touched on those. Um, you know, depths of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet where they're coming up, you know, that's a floating line and a very long indicator, or it's it's just not a practical way to fish. Yeah. You know, and Brian can speak to it. It's it's a pretty addictive method, isn't it, Brian? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, because it's, uh, your rod
1: is either in a rod holder or you're holding on to it. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. it's going over the side of the boat because the grabs are really aggressive and they yank the rod hard. It, 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 it's, a, it's a lot of fun, but uh, you've got to be positioned stationary above the fish. And you know the fish are below you because you see them on your sounder, When you see the shucks, you see the shucks on the surface of the lake, and you can see the pupa coming up, and you know it's 49 feet deep. They had to start their journey at the bottom. So, you know, a foot off the bottom is where you start fishing. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun.
0: This this is a really great suggestion for um, a method that could be used at Pyramid. But also I was thinking, and, and Phil, you've been there. Um, Brian, I don't know if you've been there, but like Lake Crowley. Yeah,
2: I've um, done it there. Pre- I've, I've done it on Lake Davis. I remember one day we were, well, we were moving from one shoal <laughs> to the other at a pretty high rate of knots and all of a sudden I'm getting pelted with the chronomids and there's birds working the surface and I I had the friend I was with slow the boat stop the boat and literally as we stopped there's just chronomid and they were good sizes they were 12s and even some 10s coming up so we just anchored up we must have been in about 35 feet of water and I got the type 7 line out short leaders you know five feet usually it's two sections a tippet maybe and because it takes us so so hard at times we're you know maybe the uh first section is like a three feet of one x zero x sometimes two x and then a final section of three x and we would uh, once we um got set up we clipped a weight uh on like a pair of hemostats um we've got uh, brian in our online store we've got these little depth um they're like a Fancy piece of uh, lead with an alligator clip on it. You carefully clip it on the fly, and we lower that down till it hits the bottom. And -hmm. then you've got your rod tip, you know, where you're going to fish it, and we just start reeling the line in, and eventually you're going to pull that weight up, and your tip will, you know, hang down. And that means Mm -hmm. your fly, that weight is literally just kissing the bottom. Right. Reach up about a foot above your retrieve hand, pull that line in, reel that slack in, and then we strip that line in, take the weight off and just cast that out so that's how we get that fly in 39 feet of water at 38 feet and then we let it sit or dangle as, as long as you can take it right <laughs> until right. you eventually get bored and then we start that slow creepy crawly retrieve bringing the fly vertically up through the water just like the naturals are going and as brian says when they take that fly Holy, you better hang on. Like you can all the other methods where you gotta watch an indicator, you gotta watch your floating line for this and that. You know, you just gotta hold on to your rod. You can look around at the birds, you can sightsee, you can do whatever you want, because you'll know when you get a hit. It'll it'll uh, literally I Brian and I've seen guests we've had on our stillwater schools and guiding that rods bent around the gunnel of a boat in around the butt section, which is just like you're just waiting for the graphite explosion. Right, like the takes are um, just horrifically like scare you, like and it's super addictive. Uh, Brian and I joke when we do our schools, we have to teach this method last, because if we taught that first, I don't think anybody else would listen to the the rest of our rhetoric about Quran. We're just going dangling. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have to cast far. I don't have to look at anything. I just got to hold on to my rod. I can do that.
0: <laughs> no, that, that's a terrific Wait method. Yeah, the, no, it, it's a terrific method that we can identify with. I mean, if, if Phil and Brian, that's something that we'll do like in early season uh, at Pyramid is we'll we'll use that same method with a sinking line, but with, you know, like some type of, you know, jig headed uh, uh, bait fish. Like right. I, for, uh, well, you because, can do you it know, with that. Yeah, and then, yeah. then that for that t- for that specific time of year, just because the, the bait fish are spawning and they're they're balling up, it's a great thing to do. Same thing, you j- a little bit different, we just drop that jig to the bottom,
4: yep. you know,
0: then you get the slack in the line, reel it up, you know, feel that, you know, you get that tension on the rod, and then do a couple cranks on the fly reel, and you just sit there, and instead of just sitting there, like, you, you kind of give it, yep. you know, you give it some rips now, and then same thing, though, <laughs> it's incredible, like, there's no question of, like, I think... I think something hit it or something was going for it. It's just, it's either hit or miss, you know, yeah. and that thing will bend. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to lose a rod. <laughs> oh, <yeah.
2: laughs> well, I, I also use it fishing leeches, balanced leeches. And I do it in the summer months when our trout lakes in my area get too warm. I use it for fishing walleye and bait fish patterns. And it's, it's deadly. Oh, right? gosh. And it's, you know, it's. Because you just you do it basically, it's like a strike indicator system. You're suspending at a set depth. and um but you just don't have to use thirty nine hundred feet a liter to do it
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, i love I love your guys's recommendation on the sinking line method because I think for those guys going for, they want to do that deep midge presentation. I've seen out here, they're stuck on the fact that they have to use an indicator and somehow patch on, you know thirty or forty feet a liter past yeah. an indicator. Yeah. You're yep. just like, oh my gosh, and you know, oh, practical that that whole thing, that whole thing, right? Yeah, that right. whole thing, and and it's and I hear stories about it all the time. Oh, and like you said, sixty feet. I've heard stories of you know, that the forty range, you know, and fifty range at Crowley. And like, oh man, you just seen the size of the leader, and I'm like, 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 how do you how do you even know you got a strike? Like, you know, like what's your react time? Yeah. You see that bobber move? I'm like, like the fish probably hit your line five minutes ago, not literally, but you know, you're just <laughs> like, like what do you? what are you doing? You know, you're just putting on a mid show down there, yanking a lineup and the fish are like, yeah, there goes that midge pattern again. You know, like
2: (laughs) that's why when, when Brian and I did our conquering chronomids DVD and now digital download series, the volume one was strike indicator techniques, but volume two was all these alternative or advanced stuff that, that nobody either knew about or does anymore. Everybody. So gets focused on the indicator and for good reason, it works. It's, you know, at the, at the base level, it's just fun to watch that little ball or whatever go underneath the surface, right? It's
4: oh, yeah. It's a blast. <laughs> it
2: but there's, there's so many other ways to do it, and they all have their time and their place, and it's just good to know all these different techniques because they're not just suitable techniques for fishing coronamids. You can fish mayflies and damsels and lots of other things using the naked technique, as we talked about. You can fish leeches and minnows using dangling techniques. You can you know do the same thing with that slow sinking line technique as you know with strike indicators now it probably started fishing coronam and pupa and has evolved into basically hanging anything under an indicator nowadays is 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 fair game so it's just good to know all these different techniques
0: it it is and i think what you avoid is something that i came up with recently i've had i've had a few slow days at pyramid and i developed something called uh, bobber lock and that <laughs> And that's where you're spending end, endless hours staring at an indicator, and yeah. it literally kind of drives you nuts because you know if you don't get a dunk or two within a certain amount of time, you just you get transfixed on this thing, and it it melts your brain. Like you're just like ah, yeah. you know, and you start <laughs> oh oh you start overthinking everything. Like whoa oh my gosh, you know I need to take that size ten and make it a size twelve and change it from brown to bread to this and that. And you start overthinking stuff, and the next thing you know sometimes you get blessed by the fish they'll come and take what you have and your bobber goes down and it resets your mind you're like oh what i had was working but bobber lock yeah. so these are great suggestions to work around that and avoid the uh, bobber lock syndrome <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so <laughs> i yeah, love if you
2: it close your eyes and see uh hot orange or hot pink or some burst orange spots you've probably got bobber lock
0: <laughs> you got bobber <laughs> lock yes right
2: yeah. right but it's good to know these these other these other techniques because you know sometimes I think still water gets unfairly stereotyped. Oh, it's just bobber fishing, right? It's just and it's 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 so much more than that. That's why we love it so much, Brian and I, because it's so every, you know every day can be different and there's so many different presentation options you can use. Um, it keeps you keeps you engaged, but it also I think makes you a better angler because you've got way more. You're not just using a hammer to bank to fix everything. You know, you're using the appropriate tool for the appropriate job.
0: True, oh, definitely true. This is all exciting stuff. Like my 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 mind is melting <laughs> in a good way. I mean, <laughs> just like, I mean, there's so many more questions, you know, but but we'll keep it simple. So from this point, gentlemen, because we've been going on for an over an hour, and not that we would want to stop, but mm-hmm. for listeners' sake, this is a lot to take in. Come on, I've taken two pages of notes. So, and I'm not that smart. I can mention smart notes. I never take notes. So this is crazy. Like, I mean, you know, well, I take notes on something here, but (laughs) not fun stuff. Um, (laughs) um, I got to progress into the, the part of the podcast that we, we love to do. And and Brian, this will be something for you. Cause we know, Phil, we, we, have talked about burritos and whatnot. And I just, (laughs) so I got, I got something for you gentlemen. So for one, I'm going to ask you, Brian, um, it, in in all your years on this glorious earth i feel like at some point in your life you have come across potentially a a blockbuster amazing burrito i hope that maybe you can speak to cuz one of our favorite segments of the show again Brian, is i love to ask my guest you have a favorite <laughs> burrito you have to and yeah you know, you're you're in british columbia correct
4: yeah
0: yeah you have to have burritos up there somewhere oh yeah i think uh, alberta is burrito free <laughs> as i've learned it's like, it's
2: there's not a burrito. burrito free. <laughs> no, it's burrito free. No. We, we have burritos, but we certainly don't have the the, the uh, selection you guys do down south. Yeah. It's a no burrito zone. <laughs> it's not no right. burrito. It's a reduced burrito zone. Reduce, <laughs> reduced. It's, it's kind of like yeah. the school zone of burritos. <laughs> the school zone. <laughs> so,
0: so uh, Brian, do you have a favorite burrito? <laughs> well,
1: you know, I got to tell you that. The- Best burrito I've ever had
4: Uh
1: was down in uh, Las Pireles on the Baja Peninsula. It was made with fresh Sierra mackerel, uh, fried and then put put in the burrito, and it was just incredible.
0: (laughs) Uh, Wow! Wow! You may have just topped our best burrito list. Like I even (laughs) I even seen this, but your description of of where it's from. Fresh out of the water,
3: seafood. Quivering. That's no, that's a new spin. It's quivering in, it's quivering
2: in, in it's quiver, it's
3: quiver, well, That's it's how fresh it is. I don't
0: yeah. Know if I wanted that
2: fresh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, e- eating it kills it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for that, Brian. Because we're gonna sit there like you really don't need to say anymore. Like it's that's fascinating. That's that's beautiful. So I'm gonna share with you, gentlemen new burrito creation that we've been bringing out to the lake, uh, past couple little trips and, and Taylor just keeps depriving himself of this cause he won't show up sometime. So, yeah. so it came up with, I had, um, I had some bison or Buffalo, whatever you prefer, short ribs. All right. With bone mm-hmm. in. So th- this is what we did. So we take that, I put that in a cast iron. Phil's taking notes. Now. Phil's taking notes. Phil's
2: so looking <laughs> up the picture. Of- <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so it's <laughs> so we take that and we, we we'll sear that um, that bone and short rib in a cast iron pan. You know, for a few minutes on each side, get it brown. Remove that, and then we'll introduce um, about a half a bottle of Cabernet to the cast iron and gas it off. Right, you get all the alcohol burn out. You start getting that rich flavor. <laughs> yeah well that's, that's 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 no that's the new york strip oh yeah <laughs> sorry that yeah
2: that's sorry that's yeah. <laughs> i thought that was the same thing that was
0: no no but that's that's a whole another adventure um uh and and basically then we take the cabernet we add some chicken stock we reintroduce the the bison short rib uh, to the cast iron pan, cover it with foil. We put it in the oven for 350 for three hours, and then it's done. We pull that apart. We shred it. Then I'll overnight that in the fridge. So in the next morning when you're getting ready for your trip, you get up extra early because that's what we all love to do is get up an extra half hour or 45 minutes earlier than we already have to, and then I'll, make, I'll, I'll rewarm that. And what I'll do is I'll take a nice large uh, Mexican tortilla and then I'll I'll scramble some eggs. Just nothing special about the egg. Just scramble an egg. Put about one and a half, two eggs per burrito. Um, I laid that short rib down on it. and It's seasoned awesomely. Um, and then I'll take some grated Parmesan uh, Parmesan Reggiano. Put that over the top. Wrap it up. Seal the burrito in the cast iron again. You know, get crispy on si- each side. Wrap that in foil, and I throw it in the little warmer bag. So, you know, a couple hours into the adventure, you know, after the sun comes up, you introduce that burrito on the shoreline mm. while you wait for the first bite. Now, I'll tell you what, that thing is, has been splendid. Like, you know, you don't think you're like, oh, I'm going to have some buffalo for breakfast because that sounds like a good idea. In this case it is. And it, it holds you over perfectly until, you know, until around lunchtime or whatever. And then you bring on the next food adventure. But that's been, at least for the time being, while it's still kind of cold weather in the morning here it's perfect, perfect amount of like heavy protein and fat and carbs and all that, whatever. Like you, you don't, you don't pay a price for it. <laughs> You're not like lethargic on the water. You're like, Oh wow, that was great. You know? So that's, that's, I wanted to share that with you guys. Cause it was just, so it's ridiculous. And
2: I came down. This is the kind of food we can expect from a day on the water with you two.
0: Oh, better. That's oh. a silly, that is a silly question. I never <laughs> thought I would say that to Phil Roly but, um, uh, <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. yeah yeah it's always we don't even always,
2: have to fish we'll just come down to eat
0: no you don't have to i mean <laughs> i mean you got a view you know you got good food and it's 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 fun to integrate that into the fishing day because yeah, you know
2: well, that's it, what makes
0: it it, right. it is it is you know you, you get you get a full belly in the morning you can fish strong um you gotta put gold flakes on there so i gotta put gold flakes on yeah. there so, you know but then you pull off the water at lunchtime if you're having a long day in the <laughs> water get something in your tummy make it good because you know sometimes you do have those days where you're like ah this is, it's not happening, you know, but you walk away at the end of the day going, you know, you know what? Beautiful view, beautiful day, great food, you know, and I learned something. I walked away and, and yesterday was one of those days, guys. I had, um, I've had two, what I call bagel days at, at Pyramid and yesterday was one of them. And I'm like, this is so funny because it's midge season and I'm out here. I've been ripping it on midges and nothing's happening. I'm watching people around me catch fish. And I'm like, how appropriate we have a midge podcast tomorrow, and I can't catch one fish on a midge. <laughs> but anyway.
3: So it makes you ask the good questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes the good questions. But that, that it, it's all good. Even those, those worsted days, you can learn so much from because you try so much, you know, and you, you try different things. And you're like, what happened? And you tend to walk away learning more because sometimes you have those super productive days. You're like, yeah, you didn't really. All you learned was, oh, my patterns worked that day. But those days where things aren't happening lead to good things. I think you know it. It, it, it builds the mind and gets you creative and asking silly questions and sending fill messages on what does this midge look like? What is it? How do I use it? <laughs> and the classic, I got it. I got. I got to throw myself under the bus here, Brian. So this was funny. So the like a couple of weeks ago, I found this. I found this lar- uh, larva under a rock. And I'm like, oh look at this thing. This thing's sweet. I took a picture of it and I was convinced I'm like, oh that's like a dragonfly or a damsel. And um a serious positive blow to the ego came from Phil when he's like, um, that's a caddis <laughs> And I'm like, Wow. Like the most basic the most basic bug any <laughs> fly fisherman should know. And I'm like, wow, I must look like a champ right now.
2: <laughs> I, I just said no I was it's just a caddis larva, that's See, all. It's, it's it's just a,
0: no, it's just a caddis. Like, I, right I wasn't I,
2: trying to put you in your place. I was just no, a, a
0: caddis
2: no, larva. A, no, you <laughs> no, did,
0: but it was great. I loved it. But I was like, wow, you know, but it's funny because at first look, you're like, oh, that definitely has to be, oh, no, that's not caddis. It's too big. So the thing was a monster. It was mm-hmm. big. It was yeah. sizable, but impressive. But now I know because it, for the common guy to look at it, it might they might think dragonfly and yeah, they, Start they, throwing dragonfly nips out there, and they, nothing they happens.
2: get big. That that caddis was probably doing workouts with that rock. You know, getting underneath and benching big.
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> it was big. It almost scared me. I'm like, "What is that?" Yeah. it was. It was sizable. It was sizable. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> but guys, be, before we depart, I, um, maybe you can share uh, your website info. You have a really, you have a tremendously great website with a wealth of information, great patterns um even a little fly shop on there could you share that that web address so people can go to it and check it out
2: um that would be our uh, stillwater fly fishing store the mm-hmm. stillwaterflyfishingstore.com so that is a um online store that Brian and I put together um because we would often be asked about where we got certain things and and how to find stuff so it's stillwater centric so we've got all our things we like to use stillwater fishing including throw pumps um, that little alligator weight I was talking about, our signature flies that are uh, tied on by Montana Fly Company on our behalf. We've got our uh, DVDs and our digital downloads, including the Conquering Coronamids DVD series. We've got strike indicators, leaders, bobber stops. Have I missed anything, Brian, we got oh yeah hooks. We got a few hooks as well for balance flies. So, and we're always looking to add more stuff. Um, you know, just <laughs> barring usual supply chain issues, which seem to be the the uh, curse of everything these days. So um, yeah, that's what. And then we both got our own individual sites, right? Why don't you tell them what yours is, Brian? Got yeah. So you know, website-wise, I've got.
4: Um
1: uh, ricewormflyfishing.com. So um, it's where I've got a bunch of articles up on there on um, fishing tactics during different times of the year and uh, things like that. And uh, um, also uh, it's where I promote. I do I do some guiding um, and uh, a limited number of trips uh, in the spring and the fall prime times in the Kenwood area and. Uh, mm-hmm as phil's mentioned before you know we know where I live I'm mean, right in right the right in the heart of some some of the best stillwater uh trout fishing in uh I think in North America so uh
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we do our stillwater schools together so Brian and I have got uh one we're doing this uh coming September uh, at Corbett Lake Lodge which is in British Columbia it's a uh, Uh, Beautiful lodge, uh, beautiful facilities, fantastic food, and a lake right on the doorstep. Um, So we're doing um, joint school up there. Um, We've still got a little bit of space left for that. Um, So that information is on my website, uh, flycraftangling.com, in the travel travel section Um, on there down the left margin. Um, So it's there as well. There's still, what, four or five spaces left, Brian? So... If you guys want to learn what we've talked about firsthand, come up and join us in a a beautiful place. Crystal clear waters with lots of cooperative fish.
0: I like that. Cooperative fish. Yes. Those are the hardest ones (laughs) to find. We
2: pay them. We pay them.
0: Oh, okay. Those kind of fish. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, Brian, it's an honor that you're able to join us. We're so glad that you were able to make it on. Phil, always a pleasure. And uh Taylor, do you have any closing words
3: or questions? You know, this was this was the weeds. It was good though. <laughs>
4: that's,
3: was good. I have a statement, and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> this was this was nice. It is the weeds. It, yeah, it it's gets, all about the weeds. It, it really <laughs> is. That's what that's what I'm here for. This right, the weeds. It's the weeds. It's mm-hmm. the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
0: gentlemen, thank you so much. And, you know, we look forward to hopefully having you on again and we could cover some other topics. There's so much to cover in Stillwater. It's it's amazing. So we look forward to having you on in the future. And we're, we're so glad that you can make it onto our podcast today. So, again, thank you very much.
1: Great, great, to, talk great. to you guys.
0: <laughs> All right, guys. You. Thank you, guys. <laughs> thank you, Brian and Phil. And that concludes this episode of Burritos Breaks and Flies. And until next time, tight lines.